What's the most important resource that you have? If you really thought about this deeply, I think you'd come to the same conclusion that Joey and I did. It's time. In our newest book, What's Without Wall Street, The Three Steps to Financial Freedom Through Passive Income, we talk about how are we tracking that time? Well, what is the thing that we can do to get more of that time back? That's right. If you've ever been listening to our podcast and thought, man, it would be amazing if I could take all the things that you guys have learned over the last 10 years and just summarize them, put them in some way to easily digest them and take action, that's what this book is all about. You're not going to want to miss it. Go to wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash new book and get your copy today. Stallion, today we're going to be sitting with Emma Powell. She's going to be talking about, are you layoff proof? And I want you to tell everyone who's listening right now what they're going to get from this interview. Well, first and foremost, uh, you're going to need to understand how it's even possible to be layoff proof, how you can then go and find the deals that will make it possible, and who needs to be on your team in order to do that. So let's dive in right now with Emma Powell. Welcome to the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast, your guide to understanding how to get out of the Wall Street rat race and start your own mailbox money lifestyle. Now, don't let these handsome Southern draws fool you. These financial minds are teaching our country to enhance savings, increase cash flow, and create passive income, all without the help of Wall Street. Are you ready to break through? Now, here are your hosts, Russ Morgan and Joey Murray. Wealth Without Wall Street Tribe, I'm so glad to introduce you today, Ms. Emma Powell, joining us live. So glad to have you. Yeah, thank you. I'm already, my cheeks already hurt because we're laughing so much. <laughs> don't, don't, oh. don't ask me anything funny. Okay, good. Then, I mean, I have the privilege of always asking the hard questions. Let's talk about when your husband got laid off for the third time. Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay. Well, first, wow. I need to tell you all about my childhood and how I was raised. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. No, let's, let's jump right into it. So he was laid off for the third time. We were living in Salt Lake City because he'd been laid off. We relocated to Salt Lake City and he calls me up on the phone. He had just decided the weekend before that he was going to quit his job and we didn't know how we we're going to make it work, but we knew we had enough passive income coming in that we would be okay. And the, the second time he got laid off was this total panic attack, fear uh, thing. And then on Saturday over the weekend, we decided with our business partners, let's start a capital raising fund and let's make an exit plan. And he was going to quit his job at the end of January. I think this was like, like a week before Thanksgiving. And so uh, three days later, he calls me up and says, uh, I've been trying to get a hold of you for a couple of hours. I just got laid off. I'm like, you are kidding me. I said, now you get a severance and we can collect unemployment while you're looking for another job because we don't really want another job, but you have to look for another job when you, if you want unemployment. So it was almost like this synchronicity of events where the, the contrast between the second time he got laid off when I felt like I got six kids, I don't know how I put him in this position to be the sole income earner for so many families, I have so many people, and all I, I make a couple, you know, 30 grand a year taking photos part-time, and, and I, I felt like I had contributed to the panic and the desperation that we were in in 2017, but the difference between that and 2022, we'd already decided he was going to quit. It's like, hey, we have enough passive income now. Yeah, we don't need to go back. And that that was really our project between 2017 and 2022 was to make him not only layoff proof, but after our first year of real estate investing, I felt like he was layoff proof. 
but he would still need to go find another job. It just wouldn't be this panic attack to realizing like this has enough money to not only make us layoff proof, but that I don't ever have to go back to work again and we can retire him in five years. That was the difference of starting with no properties going to the point where my husband's basically retired. All right. So the layoff proof idea is something we need to break down a little bit because I don't know if I've heard it said that way. So give, give, give us the keys, the, the, the big things that you guys started putting in place to become layoff proof. Well, we had already been doing like the smart things in personal finance, but I felt like what we were really missing was a robust investing plan that wasn't just investing for retirement at 65, but an early retirement plan. And I think in 2017, I just wanted it to get to the point where when he lost his job, we wouldn't be digging into the emergency fund. So we had no debt. We literally, we owned our cars. We had a mortgage and nothing else. No credit card debt, no student loans, nothing. We were completely um, Dave Ramsey style uh, investing in like our 401k. And I just never felt like it was enough. And so when he lost his job in 2017, we had that emergency fund and we had no debt, right? But could we go a month, two months, three months? Yeah, we probably could have lasted six months on that emergency fund. But you don't want to dip into your emergency fund because when you're not making that much money, it takes you so long to build that up that you almost become a miser where you don't want to dig into the emergency fund because you know it's going to be a long recovery to build it back up. So for us, it was not so much like panic, like our kids are going to be on the street and what are we going to eat? It was it was a higher level of problem where it was like, I don't want to dip into my emergency fund. And so that was the 2017 layoff. We were layoff proof at that point. No, we were layoff resistant because we didn't need to have another job right away. Right. But we were not layoff proof. We did need to get other jobs. Whereas in 2022, I felt like we don't ever have to go back to work again if we don't want to. Now, we might want to because we want to get a job that pays really well so we can invest all of it. Or we might want to because there's a skill that we're really interested in learning or a project that we really believe in, right? But it's all about being work optional, not work because you're panicking because you don't have enough money or because you don't want to dip into your emergency fund. So layoff proof is just having enough passive income so that your assets spin off enough cash that they can pay for at least your basic lifestyle. And so that's where we were in 2022. I said, you could quit now and we can make this work. Now, we had been paring down at that point, getting ready for this moment. And this is the part people don't want to hear. You got to live below your means. And living below your means does not mean that you have the biggest house that you can possibly afford with car payments and your kids in private school. So really looking at the big rocks in your budget, we listed out our expenses, biggest to smallest, kind of like reverse Dave Ramsey order, right? Because we're not going to become financially free because we stopped buying an $8 latte, right? I mean, those things add up, yes, but what really adds up fast is high housing, high transportation, meaning your vehicle, your insurance, your gas, and high food costs. And if you can get those three things really under control, then you can afford Netflix and an occasional latte splurge because your housing, your transportation, and your food are in line with living below your means. If you want to live below your means, go after the big things first. And so for us, that was buying a smaller house and renting out our big house. And the big house was too big for us anyway. It was an ego house, right? And it meant we paid cash for our cars and we drove our cars for a long time and we kept them in good working order. And it meant that we were enjoying eating at home. So we were going out on a lot of um, 
restaurants and things like that, but they had to be business meetings. We could have an occasional date night, an occasional family uh, out at the restaurant, but that was planned for. We weren't eating out because we failed to plan ahead. Like, oh, what are we going to eat for dinner time? Oh, let's just get takeout. So planning ahead and making sure that your food costs are in line with your goals. People don't want to hear about that. That's not the the passive income dream that we're selling. But you have to live below your means. Otherwise, how are you going to get anything extra to invest? It's right. all about investing what you're not living on. And the more you can cut your lifestyle, the more you'll have to invest. Everybody just has to make that decision. How far, how hard do you want to cut? If you make a lot of money, you might not have to cut as hard and you could still make great progress. But you also have a much bigger income that you need to replace, right? We all know right. those 21-year-old guys who are like retired on their passive income, but <laughs> they don't have any kids. They're not married and they're sharing their house with five other dudes. Exactly. Yeah, that that is not your situation with six kids and a husband. Mm-hmm. And and so the the real hard work was, like you said, in preparation. But what I love about what you you mentioned is the differences there is that options, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think what this show has been about is giving people the option to not have to wait until they're sixty five to start actually living right to to pursue the things that they're really excited about what they're driven by what they're created to do and not giving up on those dreams but bringing those to fruition today and it comes through creating a plan and then actually having passive income to replace your expenses that's what gives you the freedom to do those things now you weren't always in this mindset of creating a fund and becoming capital raisers that invest in really, you know, great real estate deals. Um, I mean, you mentioned what your husband did, but how, how did you get to that point? Like, I mean, somebody's listening to you right now and they're saying, I love this idea. I love these options. I love financial freedom, but how did you know, for instance, that, you know, being a capital raiser was your entree into this lifestyle and into, um, you know, building passive income? Well, if you've ever been to one of those real estate conventions or a real estate meeting where they talk a big game in the front and then they say, run to the back, get out your credit card and buy our program. They always say this phrase. It's completely untrue, but we hear it again and again and again. If you find a great deal, you will find the money. And it's completely false, but it really puts it on very early. If you want to be a real estate investor, you better be able to find money. And most people aren't thinking about it like that. They think I'm going to find great deals and the money will come. That's absolutely false. And so when I learned that it was false, because I was at a RIA meeting and there was a syndicator giving a talk and he said, that's absolutely false. And I was like, wait, what? Everybody who wants me to rush to the back of the room and pull on my credit card told me if I find a great deal, the money will come. And here he is telling me that's not right. You need to start raising money well before you find the deal so you know who to call when you do find the deal. Otherwise, you're scrambling around. Maybe you have earnest money that's gone hard. Maybe you have a closing date. And if you don't close, they're going to cancel the contract. And suddenly you're raising money um, against the clock and with a, a great amount of stress. And we've done that right? I think that's just part and parcel of being a real estate investor. But the question you have to ask yourself is, how can you minimize that so that you're not racing against the clock? So first, going to my local real estate clubs and just listening to people talk. Some people talk about flipping houses. Some people talk about being landlords. Some people talk about Airbnb. Some people talk about flipping land. I mean, every month they're putting different people up there. But the ones who really spoke to me were the syndicators. So I went to a conference called 
I think it was like raising capital, something, the raising capital summit. And I was sitting there in the audience and we had just gotten our first commercial deal under contract. And I partnered up with somebody that I met at a RIA meeting. Um, the syndicator took everybody else to lunch afterwards. And I met a bunch of people there who were interested in doing this. And he had told me months before, he said, if you ever find a deal, I will help you take it down. And I think I can raise some money from it. Turns out he's from a very wealthy family, well-connected family in our local area. I didn't know it at the time because we weren't from Salt Lake City. Uh, we had just moved there after a layoff. And so I called him when I found this deal and he took a look at it and he said, I think it's a great deal. He helped me run numbers. I didn't know what I was doing. And he said, I can raise some money for it. But then when it push came to shove, here we were a couple of months into this deal. And we were both at this, this summit together. And he was like, I need help. I can't raise the money for this. And he said, I know I said I could, but I, I'm struggling. I can't do it. And, he, and it was all hands on deck. Even the guy who came in to sign on our loan was helping us raise capital at that point. Normally, they don't even talk to you again. They sign and they, I don't know why the bank wants them on there for their experience because they're not going to help. But this guy was helping. He was helping raise capital. And I realized sitting at that summit, like nobody is immune from this. If you're in real estate, you are a capital raiser, period. It doesn't matter what else you're good at. When it comes time to make money for that deal, you are a capital raiser, all hands on deck, right? So sitting there, I realized that. And I think it was a sad moment for me because I feel like, I don't feel like this way anymore, but at the time I really felt like capital raising was just sales and it was going to be me smile and dial and cold calling and hey you know i know we haven't talked for 18 years but i have an mlm opportunity for you and and that's what it felt like to me it felt slimy it felt sleazy and it felt like i had an ulterior motive for talking to all my friends and so i think i raised a hundred thousand dollars for that deal and it was from a stranger on linkedin because i just could not send out the emails or make the phone calls to my warm network and i really had to change my attitude about what that looked like. So that that became the second evolution of the journey when I realized if I'm in real estate, I have to raise money. I better be good at it. And then when I realized as I started to get better at it, the power is in the money, not the deal. People just throw deals at me all the time if they think I have money. I might not even have money. I might not be able to raise for it. But the possibility that I could means people just hand deals to me. And I realized the money's in the money, the power's in the money. It's not in the deal. How did you know it's even possible to do this? I mean, we we kind of skipped over that from the beginning. You you mentioned that you were getting paid thirty thousand dollars a year to take photographs, and and all of a sudden we we jumped forward into you're being at real estate investment conferences and you know going to the yeah. local real estate investment association meetings, and you're you're out there doing this first deal raising a hundred thousand. But how did you even know that you had it in you? How I think that's the question that so many people would have is what does it take to to be successful? How did you know it was possible? Well, there was a snowy night in 1976 when my mom went into labor. No. <laughs> 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 um, I, I look back, I asked myself that same question because when we left our lives in Austin and picked up and moved across country for a new job in Salt Lake City, it was, it was a huge upside down. Like, right, we really had to we really had to re-examine things because the photography business is on site and I left my business behind. And I had to ask myself in Salt Lake City, do I want to rebuild a photography business? And after some research and talking to people, the answer was no. I was getting frankly too old. Like it was starting to hurt my hands 
And the late nights at weddings and things like that were were really painful. And real, I did real estate photography. And so like crawling around, you know, back in corners and underneath and doing all this stuff, it was it was physically demanding in a way that I didn't think was something I could do till I was 65, even though at 40, I could have kept doing it. But you have to ask yourself the question when you're when you're looking at doing something like, can I do this till I'm 65? And if I can only do it till I was 50, do I want to build this? Do I really want to build this? And the answer was no. And so I started going to a lot of business networking meetings, like beer and bagels or business and bagels or whatever they call it, right? Just on meetup.com. And I ended up at one of those places where it was like, run to the back of the room, give me a credit card. And I felt a little bit duped when we were there because here I was showing up thinking it was going to be like massage therapists and insurance sales guys and chiropractors who needed some help with their business. Uh, I had a degree in entrepreneurial management. I had just graduated about three months before my husband got laid off in 2017. So maybe I could build a new business. I didn't want to go get a job. I had six homeschooled kids. I never wanted to work more than part-time. And so getting a, a W-2 working part-time, I'm full-time was not an option. And so I was just trying to build a business, helping other business people do their social media marketing, keep their books, like all the things that they don't know how to do, right? Because they're maybe good at insurance salespeople, but they don't know how to keep their books. So I just ended up at one of these meetings and I walked out of it kind of upset. Um, the kind of person who invited me, I felt like it was like, hey, I got an MLM opportunity for you, right? But when I got home, I started thinking about real estate and maybe I should just get a couple of rental houses and, and do this. And looking back at that moment, I thought, where did, I mean, obviously I'm not going to run to the back of the room and pay 20 grand for this, you know, amazing education that's going to turn my life around. And I started thinking about the real estate investors that I knew in Austin who had presented us with opportunities that we were not ready for, that we turned down. And I started to realize like, actually, I know kind of a lot of real estate investors now that I think about it. People who own rental houses, people who are flipping. One of our neighbors built class A indoor climate controlled storage units. And he said once at a block party, probably 10 years before, he said, I'm to the point where like making money is so easy. It's just not even a challenge anymore. I really need to do something else <laughs> because he just had so much passive income from his storage units. And every once in a while, he'd Russ call was us and say, me that last week, actually, is crazy. Yeah. yeah. I'm just like, so boring. Was, okay, thanks a lot. <laughs> Making money so boring. <laughs> and he went back to school and became a family therapist when he was 50. And then we had another friend. His his uncle's actually Bob Allen, the guy who wrote No Money Down. And I, at the time, he was asking me to come help him in his real estate investing business. And so he was teaching me a little, and I just wasn't ready. I wasn't comfortable with what was some of the stuff. And he'd ask us for a hard money loan because he was a very good friend of ours. And we had mentioned that we'd been saving up money because 2008, right? And he said, well, do you just like to put that in a real estate deal and I'll pay you 10% on it? And and we just didn't feel comfortable. We're like, oh, that's a lot of money. All your eggs in one basket, 10%, that's high. It sounds like risky, right? The higher the return, the it turns out 10% is low for hard money loan. But I, I didn't know that at the time. So when I'm sitting there in Salt Lake City and I'm thinking to myself, like, maybe I should start a real estate business. I start thinking back about all these people that I knew who were already doing it. And I knew what a hard money loan was. And so when I started researching this organization that wanted me to run to the back of the room, I found bigger pockets and I found a real estate investing association clubs. And so I just started going to those. I mean, why would I spend 20 grand when I could spend $150 a year? I'm not going to pick the difficult fruit until I pick the low hanging fruit. So I just went after the low hanging fruit. Bigger pockets is free. RIAs are super cheap. So I just joined all that and just started going. And I felt like if I ever got to the point where I wanted to spend 20 or 30 grand on education, it better be because I did a deal and I made money off of a deal. And then I would use that to further my education. But that was not going to start there. 
right? So that was really the the evolution of going from a photographer, graphic designer. And plus the house that we had in Texas it was a total gut remodel. I mean, I just put pictures of that on LinkedIn this morning and people are just laughing because my kids are standing there holding like nail guns, you know, framing, framing guns and all the drywall everywhere. And and we had we had completely redone that house. And so we knew construction. Um, we were, we grew up in very handy families. My dad built our house. My husband's um, family completely redid their house when he was a little kid. And so that kind of stuff didn't scare us. And I felt like, well, I already know construction, at least sort of. I mean, I'm not an expert, but I know it pretty well. And so taking over an old building and fixing it up was not scary to us because we had those remodel experiences behind us. So it just kind of all started to coalesce into this. I'm a photographer, graphic designer, a marketer. If I went out and got a job, I'd be making maybe 60, 70 K a year. But if I go on and become a real estate investor, I can make two, three, 400 K a year. And that is so much of a delta that no matter how hard it was and how much I didn't know, I felt like I needed to learn it. Mm. I could have gone to medical school and become a, a specialist to do that, or I could just go become a real estate investor with free education. I mean, which one are you going to pick? Well, for me, it'd be easy because I can't even spell science, so I would have to go that <laughs> route. If that's the only two options we have, right? Like, I, I've not yeah. done the, the capital raising either, but I would think, yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty confident science was not going to be the strategy, biochemistry. Yeah. If you've listened to our show for any length of time, you've heard us talk about infinite banking and how we were able to use that concept to create over $50,000 a month in passive income. But it's just not that easy to figure out how does this all connect into my own personal system? Stallion, that's why we created the Passive Income Operating System, bro. It shows you how to turn active income into passive income. It makes all the steps come together. If you would like to get access to it as a podcast listener, we've never given this away in public before. Go to whatswhatwallstreet.com forward slash P-I-O-S. There was nothing worse than walking into class when you're in school and the teacher saying, pop quiz day. Why? Because you were unprepared. Are you unprepared though for financial freedom? Don't be. Find out how close you are by taking our 30 second quiz at wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash quiz. So I, I want to pause and just recap for the person who's been riding down the road. You were working as a freelance photographer, stay at home mom with mm -hmm. six kids. By the way, you, you kind of glossed over this and so we didn't say this, that you said <laughs> the house was too big for our family of eight. Like, I don't know how big the damn house is for you to have a big house. It was a big house. Hurt to be big. Oh my goodness. Um, but you're, you, you start doing this and you also said that the power is in the money. Those who have the money can do it. So you started saying, I need to invest time in my education and the, the ROI, the return on that information was mm -hmm. this, it was equal to going and getting a specialist degree, you know, going into medical school for 12 yep. years in essence to become a physician or a surgeon. Yep. The thing that we didn't touch on though, that you, you talked about the the risk of just jumping out and doing that is not necessarily in doing a deal, but it's in vetting the deals for others. Right. So yeah. talk a little bit about that part. Cause I'm really interested in how you got that education. Some of us get that education the wrong way. I've got a couple of those uh, Ponzi schemes behind behind me, you know, yep. like you ever need to know how to really get rid of cash quickly. I, I could tell you, <laughs> I got some examples. How for you though, did you go through that process of vetting deals? I knew what Ponzi schemes were 
And so I knew how to stay away from them. We had a friend of ours invite us to invest in something he was doing many, many years ago. And I opted out of it because it seemed weird. They wouldn't take a Gmail address. I looked up the guy's name and he had an interview talking about how the SEC was on a witch hunt. I didn't even know what the SEC was at that point, but I sure was looking it up. That was where I learned the term Ponzi scheme. And I sat back from that. I was like, I think this guy's running a Ponzi scheme. And I told our friend, like, I, I'm not going to invest in this. This doesn't seem safe. Right. And a couple of months later, he sent all of us an email and say, yes, it ended up being a Ponzi scheme. I lost like, you know, 10 or 20 grand. And I'm really sorry that I led you all down this path. And so that experience very early on for me, um, before I ever thought about investing for real estate, I knew that there were people out there who would want to take my money. And then right before we left Texas, um, one of our friends ended up running the biggest Ponzi scheme in Texas history and went to prison for something almost almost 20 years tens of millions of dollars. And he stole millions of dollars from our friends. And we never invested with him, even though our friends were like, oh, we're making such great returns. You should totally get into this. And like I said, we had our hundred grand saved up and we had opted out of it because I, I, it was just, I didn't think that was a Ponzi scheme. It ended up being much worse than I thought, but just the knowledge of like, I don't feel comfortable with what he's investing in. I don't quite understand what's going on. And to me, that's just a red flag. So when I got into real estate, coming off of those experiences, I knew that it was very easy for people to get their education from the wrong source. And so I'm going after the right sources. How can you lose if it's $150 a year RIA fee, right? Um, is it the highest quality education because they're just looking for speakers? I don't know. You have to be a good sifter. When you're in a low barrier of entry, you have to be able to sift through people who are just spending $150 bucks a year and people who are really out there doing the business. So if you become a good sifter of information and a good sifter of people, vetting people, then for me, it wasn't that big of a deal. You just, you take the good with the bad. And so being able to go out and learn how to vet a deal to me was sitting in these classes month after month and thinking to myself, well, they're telling me if I want a single family house that I should be vetting a deal every single day every day, find something on the MLS, find something from a wholesaler and vet a deal every single day. That means like run the numbers. The Bigger Pockets has a great calculator for that. I ran it through that. I developed a little bit of my own spreadsheet. I'm, I'm a, I love spreadsheets, but I don't like the research that I need to do to find the numbers to put in the spreadsheet, garbage in, garbage out. And I didn't want to go find the good stuff. So I was really struggling with actually doing this, even though like I can index match, match with the best of spreadsheet people. I just don't like doing the research. So I forced myself to go do the research, found the bigger pockets tool, started running um, single family deals every single day. And I thought, okay, so how could I do this with commercial? I was like, maybe I should do one commercial deal a week. And I didn't really want to do it. I don't love that part of it. But I said, maybe if I do it and I get good at it, I'll get fast at it. And then I won't hate it so much. Well, it turns out it doesn't matter how fast I am and I still hate it. So I <laughs> and it told me I needed to switch gears a little bit. But when I first got into real estate, I was helping uh, somebody sell his house and asked him what his day job was. I was wholesaling a house. And he said he was a medical device salesperson. And I said, what does that actually do? He goes, well, I'm the guy who stands in the operating room and tells the doctor how to install the device because he doesn't know what he's doing. So, so you have no medical training, no medical background, but you're all gowned and gloved in the OR pointing to the doctor on how to install this piece of technology. And I realized from, from tech startups, my husband's IT background, that their technical salespeople know as much about that product as the developer does because they're out there to sell this product, they better be able to answer the questions. And I said, okay, if I'm raising capital, it's kind of like selling investments, even though we're not really selling anything. It's the same type of process. 
I better know my product inside and out so I can answer the questions for the nitty gritty engineers who are going to grill me. And so I started just running a commercial deal once a week and I was finding them, some of them from wholesalers. It took me a while to find commercial wholesalers or not as many of them as, as residential, but I started to, through networking, see more and more of them. Um, I would just go get something off of LoopNet or off of Crexy. I would start calling for sale by owners off of Loopset, LoopNet and Crexy, and I would have them send me their documents, or I would just download anything that I didn't have to sign an NDA for. And then I started signing NDAs in markets that I didn't care about. So the broker started sending me lots of stuff. And so just little by little getting deal sources that I knew I wasn't going to buy any of those. They were mostly garbage, right? But I was getting a lot of practice. I found a good spreadsheet. I think I was using um, Obsidian Capital. I can't remember the name of the software they use now, but I started out with that. It would start out with my own homemade spreadsheet first, and then I got Obsidian Capitals and then just kind of worked my way up from there. There are a lot of, of spreadsheets you can use. I like Adventures in Commercial Real Estate. I think it's adventuresincre.com and they have free spreadsheets and free training videos. It's like a pay what you can. You can pay zero, you can pay $1,000, you can pay a million dollars if you want to. So that tool um, was very handy for me to learn how to do this. And and I wasn't doing it because I thought I was going to be a financial underwriter, a financial guru. I was doing it because I knew I wanted to raise capital and I better understand my project and I better be able to recognize a good deal when one came across. Because you start raising money, people throwing deals at you, right? Most of them are garbage. So being able to recognize that quickly was a skill that I developed with the intent to become a capital raiser. I, I do want to touch on this because the capital raiser idea gets exciting for someone who has this skill set they're great at sales they're good with people and they go oh i can do that but there's also some things that you must know otherwise you end up um, sharing a sale with your buddy back in texas talk a little bit about that we don't have to go super deep but i definitely want people to understand there's got to be more to it than just raising the money more to vetting the deal and making sure you have a good project more to what do you have to do after raising the money than just raising money? How do you how do you actually get paid oh. for raising the money? But there's got to be more to it. What what are the responsibilities that you as a capital raiser have in order to be mm -hmm. compliant? So I opted out of getting a securities license, and the reason why is because it's too difficult to find a broker who will allow you to raise money for real estate syndications because you have to have your license hung with a broker. Uh, I didn't want to become a broker because that's basically running my own business. And it almost seemed like, let's go run this business I don't want to run so I can get into this other business that I do want to run. And so I opted out of the brokerage and I and then because I couldn't find a broker, I opted out of the license. And I didn't want to just raise capital. I still wanted to be involved in the real estate deals, more of like a transaction coordinator and a deal creator, like an entrepreneurial, like a serial startup, right? I can find the deal. I can find the money. I can find the people, put this together and then I can at a certain point start to step back as the managers take over. So I didn't want to just get a license and raise capital. So how do you get paid if you don't have a license, right? So you have to be a principal on the deal. And the SEC is starting to see through this little ploy where people are like co-GP and that's not actually a real technical term. It's, it's, it's almost like um, go out and say you're co-GP and see how fast the SEC will investigate you for, for being on that team without uh, a, legitimate, a legitimate reason to be there. So basically what it is, is if you are raising capital from limited partners, meaning people are putting their money into a deal and they're expecting some sort of a return through no effort of their own, they are not going to work on this. They are not going to sit on calls. They are not going to vote. They're not going to show up to the office. It is similar to the way that you buy a stock. You buy a stock, you set it, and you just watch it. You can't do anything other than sell it. You have no 
impact or effect on the outcome of that financial investment. The managers of the company do. So you need to be a manager of a company if you want to get paid for raising capital. And the way that you get paid for raising capital if you're the manager of a company is the same way every other manager gets paid. Fees, asset management fees, acquisition fees. And there's something to be said about compensation based on fees versus performance-based fees. And that's a different conversation. I like to do more performance-based fees because we don't make money until our investors make money. I mean, we take a little bit off the top because we negotiated a good deal because we found a good deal because we're helping to manage a good deal. And you have to be in that general partnership for some actual purpose. You don't just raise money and then say you're in charge of investor relations, meaning that you send out a monthly newsletter or something. That's not a legitimate role. And as this becomes more and more common, the SEC will be cracking down on people who are in general partnerships without a legitimate reason to be there. And Fannie Mae loans have already done it. They don't want to do deals with more than, say, five people in the GP because it's always like, oh, I thought you were watching the kid. What? I, I mean, was I watching the kid? And so they've known that they run into a lot of problems with loans where they have bloated general partnerships. And so they've already that, that was a couple of years ago, but they said they're not going to do loans for huge uh, GP teams. So people who are on the GP for the purpose of raising money are there illegally. Let's just call it what it is. If you're not yeah. there for some purpose in addition to raising money, then you are committing a crime. So for me, I had to step back and say, do I really want to try and get in there and circumvent this and be co-GP, but I'm still contributing something. Then I was spending too much time in asset management meetings. I was spending too much time on like construction stuff, which I could do. But then I realized it was diluting my time to just go raise money. And when I got to the point where I was like, actually, I think I do just want to raise money. I don't want to just run these deals anymore because it's not scalable. How many properties can you manage before you're just like not one more asset management meeting? Like, I do not care what faucets you choose. And getting to that <laughs> point, I realized I know how to do this. I know how to vet good teams. And I just want to go raise capital. So I had to start a fund, basically a fund that you file with the SEC saying, I am going to go raise money without a license. Here are all my documents. You can check on me whenever you need to, keeping everything on the up and up. And starting a fund is expensive. And so that's why it kind of took me so long to get there because I didn't actually know if that's what I wanted to do full time. So I, I had to I had to do the projects and then raise capital for those projects until I got to the point where I said, I'm just going to raise the capital and I'm not going to be a frontline asset manager anymore. You still have to manage the right. asset as as a fund manager, but it's not so much like picking out which contractor you're going to use and picking out flooring or or any of that. It's it's a, yeah. it's a higher level of management than that. <clears throat> well, I, and I love the way that you laid this out because the the way in which you you think about a GP team on any on any deal or even within your fund, there are people that have certain roles, certain things that they're really good at, certain things that they want to focus on. And for the person who's listening to you, they somebody is listening saying, that's exactly what I want to do. What Emma's talking about, I want to be Emma in my own deal. Um, but there's other people that are like, maybe there's something else within that GP you know, team that I might be better at. Like, So who, in your mind, this is kind of how we'll wrap up the today is who needs to be on that team for you to have a successful uh, investing fund or investing group to be successful? Well, we'll start out one with the necessary minimum, right? 
You need someone to sign on the loan. They have to have a net worth equal to the amount of money being borrowed. And this can be one person or it can be a group of people. They can form an LLC and come in and basically be a key partner. As long as the entire group, the entire GP has a net worth of what they're borrowing, then they can sign on that loan. In addition, they'll want somebody with similar experience to the asset that's being purchased, which is why I made the joke earlier about when you put a KP on your team and he signs on your loan and then he just walks away. I, I don't know why they want that guy there because he doesn't do anything. And I, I think that if banks knew how little they did with rescuing a deal that's in trouble, they would be appalled. And so you, but you got to have that guy in there. So the rich guy who's going to put his balance sheet up, he's called and, the key partner. And, and, key, and that that's key very partner get paid as a, for the GP because he's putting yep. just as, as, and it's ultimately because he's taking the risk. That's why he can be a part of the deal. Yeah. yeah okay. And there is there is risk there. But on these sizes of properties that we're doing, most of the loans are non-recourse. He's not giving a personal guarantee. His risk really is getting on a lender's bad side if he's had a foreclosure or something gets under the DSCR that it should have. Uh, we had a problem with one of our KPs who he had signed on another deal and their DSCR had fallen below the, the lender threshold during COVID. And he he stepped in and helped turn that one around and they got the DSCR back up. But because he was on that list, we were going after the same lender and they're like, we're not going to lend to this guy again. So there is some risk there on being associated with a deal that's not doing well, but it's not a personal guarantee. And you basic and lenders don't have like a bad boy list that they share. It's just a coincidence. It was the same lender on the deal we were trying to do with him versus the deal he was already on. So most of them can continue to sign on loans long after they've had a default or a foreclosure or something go wrong because there's lots of lenders to choose from. Is there, any limit, everybody... to the, is there any limit to the number of deals? So could that same uh, KP go and, and sign on three other deals in the next month that, I mean, let's just, I'm just using blank numbers here. So there's somebody listening. Mm -hmm. It's like, wait a second. I just found a potential way to reduce passive income because I've built yeah. up, you know, a $20 million net worth. I go sign on your deal that's 20 million. I go sign on Joey's deal that's 20 million. I go sign on Russ's deal that's 20 million. And, but I only have $20 million net worth and I just signed for $60 million. Is that possible? It is possible. And the thing about commercial lending, it's not as regulated as residential. You see mortgages are kind of the same. They're, they get a little vanilla. Uh, but commercial loans are all over the place. Some of them are going on global cash flow. Some of them are going on net worth. It just it really just depends on the lender. And so they're all going to have their different underwriting criteria for what that balance sheet should look like and what else can be on that balance sheet. They will ask for a per personal financial statement for everybody signing on that loan, which will have all of your assets and all of your liabilities. And so if you've signed on a loan, that would go on your liability sheet and they'll look at it and they'll say, if you are overextended, they will say you need to go find another guy. And so, yes, there is a certain point that there is a limit, but that limit is different for every lender. And so you just got to ask. Good. Who else do you think um, is short needs to be on your team outside of, so you have the key partner who has a big balance mm -hmm. sheet. Who else is on the team? You got to have the the person who finds the deal and they don't have to be a GP, um, but they do need to get paid somehow, either as a bird dog or to be on the GP. So the person who brings the deal in should be getting some credit. It's common to steal deals from deal finders um, to he'll bring it in, in. Maybe he's got an accepted uh, letter of intent on it and brings it to a group and they say, great. And they come back to him later and say, we don't actually need you on this deal. You're not offering anything else other than the deal. You don't know things. And I think that is, that's just really sleazy. I would never do that. And I would never work with a group that 
does that. Um, but it is possible. So that's why the deal finder has the least amount of power. Because once they turn over that deal, unless they've got it under contract, um, they have no power. If they can get it under contract, you need to think about spending four, maybe five figures on negotiating a purchase and sale agreement on a commercial deal because you got to pay lawyers to get involved. So somebody who's going to go so far as to get a deal under contract is going to have a lot more power, but they better believe in that deal and they better believe in their ability to raise capital for that deal. Because once they have put in that kind of money, you don't get that back if you don't do the deal. That's at-risk capital. And so the deal finder, yes, will often be in the GP, but not always. And he should expect some sort of either a bird dog or a wholesale fee, depending on how much work he's done. If he just finds it, that's a bird dog. If he gets an LOI on it, yeah, that's somewhere between a bird dog and a wholesale fee. Uh, if he gets it under contract, then he really has all, all the rights. If he want a wholesale fee or does he want to be a member of the GP? So typically they'll choose to be a member of the GP. I've I, I do know some commercial wholesalers, but usually they want to be on the GP. Um, the, the third person you need to have on there is the asset manager who is actually going to oversee the day-to-day -day operations. And this is the person who should have the most experience, in my opinion, because your KP is not really going to help out. and He's not going to do that. Some of these can, can be combined to the same person. The first deal I ever did, I found the deal, right? But then I also was the lead asset manager on the deal. And I've since turned that management over to my other partners. But at the beginning, I was much, much more involved. So it doesn't have to be three different people. It's more like three different roles. Who's managing it? Who found it? Who is going to be signing on the loan? And all of those people also need to be raising capital. The thing about everybody needs to be raising capital if they have some role on the deal is saying that you can't have somebody in there just for raising capital. They have to have some legitimate role. Um, some other things that you'll find are, are people who can do various things with the asset management, and that might get into more um, nuanced and maybe two or more people, or you could hire somebody to do it and all of that. But those are really the three the three big ones, and everything else is either optional, doesn't apply to every deal, um, or can be done in some other way. Awesome. So hopefully as you listen to Emma, you start to see maybe where do you fit? into that or or if you fit because ultimately this is about your journey to financial freedom and emma is, um, has done a great job of just laying out how she got to where she is what was that light bulb moment the point in which she realized she could contribute to her family in this way and create more freedom uh, from her husband having to go to work and and maybe that's your journey and if it is uh we pray that this is has been helpful to you today Emma, for those who uh, would like to connect with you outside of this, what would you, where would you want them to go? I definitely want to talk to people. The reason we do podcasts is for the networking. People say, oh, I found all my deals in my network. I raise all my capital of my network. And people are like, I don't know how to make a network. It's by listening to a podcast like this, hearing somebody that you identify with or that you relate to and reaching out to them. People are like, oh, they've been on a big podcast or something. They must be so famous. They're not going to want to hear from me. If you have capital to be a limited partner, like you are number one target on everybody's list. We go to conferences and that's a lot of people who want to syndicate and they're looking for deals and all that. But who shows up to that going, I got a hundred grand. I want to put into somebody's deal. And then it's like shark tank, right? So if you want to be a limited partner, you have so many options of people that you can be investing with and everybody wants to hear from you. So I have my limited partners reach out to me at my website, partnerwithrise.com. It has, it's for accredited investors and we have all the current deals that we're running. We have a customizable fund where you can offer 
opt into specific deals and opt out of ones that you're not interested in. So you really can control what your portfolio looks like. If you want to be a little bit more hands-on, we do have a joint venture club. And again, this is for proactive people who are ready to take on a real role, not just sitting back and watching to learn. If you're going to be in a GP, you need to be able to contribute something significant. So that's why we started the joint venture club. You can find that at riseclubcapital.com. We meet every week and we just look at deals. And if people are interested, we can put a group buys together. Man, so cool. Thank you so much, Emma, for coming on and having fun with me and Joey and uh, Tribe. Uh, you kind of got to see the journey of someone who was not in the real estate investment um, capital raising space who has done it and has done it well. So if this is something that you see as part of your journey to become financially free, she kind of gave you a framework to do. And if you want to connect with her as well and have more conversations, reach out to her at those. Uh, we'll make sure those links are in the show notes. Emma, have a great day. Thank you so, so much for coming. Yeah. Thank you so much. And let me geek out on it. I think my friends and family are sometimes sick of me uh, talking about this all the time. So I always love to get in and and just talk about it with people who are interested in talking about it. If people are interested in learning about it. I just, I just love it. So I appreciate the opportunity. 100%. I'm always... Excited to learn about it. And Joey knows exactly what you're talking about. You know, friends and family just are <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. And I hope you had fun. Have an amazing day. This has been the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to break free of the Wall Street mindset and begin building wealth on your own terms in places you understand so that your wealth will never run dry. See you next episode.